0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 12th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead...
1: More than a million Palestinians are in and around Rafa. Uh, that's where they were told to go. Military operations right now would be a
0: disaster for those people and it's not something that we would support. The US national security spokesperson, just one of a chorus of voices opposing Israel's plan to launch a ground offensive in the southern Gaza city. We'll have analysis of the situation. Alexander Stubb has won the Finnish election. We'll hear what this former prime minister will bring to the role. We'll check in with Latin America with a focus on unrest in Colombia and the latest travail of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Then to Australia, where a huge investment in a military drone programme has been announced. We'll have a roundup of business news and a flick through the global papers with Simon Brook. Simon, what have you spotted?
2: Well, the New York Times assesses the impact of Donald Trump's comment that he would encourage Russia to attack any nato country that failed to pay its fair share in defense and the times of israel reports on president biden's warning to binyamin netanyahu not to move into rafa without a credible plan for civilians
0: and we'll learn more about the year of the dragon as the lunar new year is celebrated by millions that's all ahead here on the globalist live from london First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israel launched a special forces operation that freed two Israeli hostages in Rafa amid airstrikes early today, which local health officials said killed 37 people and wounded dozens in the southern Gaza city. US President Joe Biden and top Western officials criticized former President Donald Trump on Sunday after he suggested the United States might not protect NATO allies who aren't spending enough on defense from a potential Russian invasion. And in the US Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs fought back to beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 in overtime and win their their third Super Bowl in five years. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday the Gaza Health Ministry said that nearly 29,000 Palestinians had been killed and more than double that had been injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza since 7th of October, the day on which 1,200 people were killed in southern Israel by Hamas gunmen, who also took about 240 people hostage. Now, some one and a half million Palestinians who took shelter in the southern Gaza city of Rafah are braced for Israel to complete a plan to evacuate them and launch a ground assault against Hamas fighters in the area. The United Nations, the European Union, the United States and Arab nations have all warned Israel not to go ahead with the planned offensive, saying it would cause a humanitarian catastrophe. Well, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Open Democracy's international security expert. Paul, many thanks for coming on the show. As we heard in our headlines, uh, Israel launched a special forces operation in Rafa overnight, freeing two hostages. This isn't the feared offensive, though, is it?
3: No, this is not. And essentially what has happened is that Israeli special forces have succeeded in releasing two hostages. But the problem is that indicates the extent of the problem. There are still the best part of 100 hostages. Uh, Some sadly probably now have been killed in airstrikes. There's something like 100 who are still held by Hamas. And the point is that it illustrates the difficulties that the Israelis are having in getting at the hostages. I think there have been uh, one other who's actually been freed and then three others are actually sadly killed mistakenly by Israeli forces when they got away from their captors. It's an indication of how well embedded uh, Hamas is in the area. And it's proving extremely difficult for the Israelis, which is one of the reasons why they're using such immense firepower uh, to try and dislodge Hamas so far. That has not gone very well. And in fact, if anything, there are indications that Hamas is beginning to reconstitute itself uh, in the northern part of Gaza, areas which were considered to be under full Israeli control. So it illustrates the extent of the problem, which makes it, I'm afraid, more likely um, that the Netanyahu administration will move to take even stronger action down in Rafa, which could, as virtually every analyst said, prove to be something of a disaster.
0: So what is the Israeli ground offensive plan?
3: We don't yet know. Uh, If you're going by what has happened elsewhere and take what was happening in one or two of the refugee camps in and around Gaza City earlier on in the war, the sort of second month of the war, what you see there was the combination of the Israelis moving their troops in slowly, using huge firepower uh, to destroy any sort of operation they come across. Uh, The effect of that is really pretty disastrous because, of course, you have all the civilians present, which is why we're now heading for 30,000 Palestinians killed which is by far the worst from a Palestinian perspective that there's been in the last 75 years. You've got to go right back to the original uh, takeover uh, of the territory by the Israelis back in 1947-48 to see something in it even comparable. So it's turning out to be really quite a disaster all round. And much will depend on whether the Netanyahu government persists in its policies and therefore, inevitably, whether the United States is going to play ball with that. The one thing we have to remember is there's only one country in the world that has the influence over Israel to bring this to an end. That is the United States. Israel is now so dependent on American arms, which are still flowing in, um, that, in fact, Biden has a great deal of power. But for internal political reasons in the United States, it's very difficult for him to use it at present.
0: Mm. Well, we know that Biden and Netanyahu spoke on Sunday. Do we know what came out of the conversation?
3: No, we don't. But from what the commentators are saying, and particularly what the um, Pentagon spokespeople and the State Department and the White House spokespeople are saying, is that there have been very strong warnings to Netanyahu not to take this step without some credible um, policy for the refugees. Um, there's no indication so far that Netanyahu is following that. Mm. And it does look like we're going to see some sort of increased ground military action uh, down in the south, particularly in Refa, but probably in Khan units even more. There's no indication at the moment that Netanyahu is bowing to this heavy pressure from the United States. He probably feels that given the American position biden's position that he can actually get away with it whether that is going to be the case depends hugely on how long this war will last
0: now egypt's particularly concerned because of course Rafah's on its border can you tell us more
3: Well, the point is that Egypt is no friend whatsoever of Hamas. Hamas is seen by the Egyptians as part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, The Sisi regime has been very tough in its treatment of supporters of the Brotherhood. There are thousands in jail and probably hundreds have actually been killed. Uh, So Egypt, the last thing Egypt wants, absolutely, is the flood of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians out of Gaza into the Sinai Uh, that Egypt is just not prepared for that. It would be destabilizing for the Israeli, for the Egyptian country. And so this is why you have this real issue. There is no way for the Palestinians to go. Obviously, they're not allowed anywhere near Israel, uh, but within Gaza, it is becoming such of a, a disaster. Um, that there will be pressure internally from them to get across the border. The Egyptians do not want that, and they want to have absolute control of that border, which so far they've done, and also maintained cooperation with Egypt, with Israel. But that seems to be fading, which I think is probably a major worry for the Netanyahu regime.
0: Now, Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations have also reacted very strongly. What have they said?
3: Well, they're saying basically that this must be brought to an end. There must be some sort of ceasefire. I think one thing that is perhaps not realized so much outside the, the region is the very, very strong um feeling that there is an it's essential to have a ceasefire in what people used to call sort of perhaps metaphorically the Arab Street, not the leaderships. But the ordinary people, the the anger at what is happening is palpable, and it extends across much of the global south and indeed some parts of the global north. But the point is, this is very worrying for the leaderships, particularly where you have pretty strongly autocratic leaderships in some of the Arab countries. They're worried about the attitudes within within their own peoples. Uh, And this is why they are sort of putting such pressure or attempting to, both on the United States and particularly where they can directly uh, with uh, Israel itself. But an indication of this is what you started with, and that is the point about the Egyptian attitude, that they want this brought to an end soon and they do not want under any circumstances hundreds of thousands of Gazans and Palestinians coming across the border into Sinai.
0: And so what meaningful dialogue around ceasefire is happening?
3: It's very difficult to say. I mean, the main people uh, sort of at a semi-official level will be the Qataris, obviously, and they've been playing an important role because they do speak directly to the Israelis and indeed to Hamas. And in fact, Hamas actually has uh, a base and office in Doha, So they're the most important ones. One suspects and there are indications that there are a lot of sort of informal initiatives going on. People trying to reach out. Groups, some of them Western, some elsewhere, what you might call the informal links that you do get in this situation. There's no indication at the moment they're making really very much progress, but people will persist in this. So we do come back particularly, um, essentially, to uh, Doha, to the Qataris. But one must also remember that in a number of Western countries, there's huge unease of what is happening. Uh, Major problems, political problems seem to be developing in the UK in particular, Uh, the kinds of levels of um, opposition Uh, to what the Israelis are doing is far stronger than I think the mainstream media tends to reckon. And you see that at ground level. I'm in the north of England where there are large Muslim minorities and people are furious at what is happening. And that may even have a small effect, but a discernible effect, on British politics, particularly with the general election coming up.
0: And on US politics too, one imagines.
3: Very much so. I mean, this is the key thing. People tend to think think about the Jewish lobby in the United States. I think that's a false uh, analogy, because what we really have is the Israel lobby. And in terms of voting intentions and number of votes, I mean, uh, there is a lot of support for Israel, but a huge amount of it stems from Christian Zionism. Uh, You know, something like nearly a third of all Americans... Uh, would be called evangelical Christians. It's a more religious country than people tend to realize. And within that tradition, there's a very powerful tradition of uh, support for Israel through this phenomenon of Christian Zionists, where it is seen that this is part of the sort of the end days prophecies that Israel must be protected and is playing a role, sort of God-endowed role. And this is, we're dealing here with some tens of millions of people who hold this. They're people who, by and large, will tend to vote, uh, not that strong in the United States normally. They're also uh, really very pro uh, Republican. And it's something which Biden is watching. It very rarely gets considered in detail. Uh, by analysts but it's a very important part of this and this is why one should use the term Israel lobby rather than just Jewish lobby.
0: Mm. And just very quickly before you go Paul what sort of timeline are we looking at when do you think Israel might launch a ground attack on Rafa if indeed they do go ahead with it?
3: Mm -hmm. Well I think what you said at the end is the key they will probably go ahead with it but how is the point point? Uh, And this is where the Israelis are in a real quandary because what they want to do is probably now getting to the stage where it is not compatible with what even the United States will allow them to do. Meanwhile, as I said at the start of our discussion, there are indications that even now, admittedly on a much smaller scale, Hamas is starting to reconstitute itself. And there are indications from, I think, reliable American sources that even now, um, the Israelis have only managed to uncover about one third of this massive tunnel complex. And so in other senses, when the Israelis say this war may go on through until 2025... They are probably right, unless some way can bring this to an end. But that, as I say, is very difficult because Hamas at the moment feels, unbelievably, with all the suffering and loss of life, that it has the upper hand. Uh, and that is why we have such a real problem with this very difficult conflict.
0: Paul, thank you very much indeed. That's Paul Rogers there. And this is The Globalist. <laughs> It's 9.14 in Helsinki, 7.14 here in London. In Finland, more than 4 million people were eligible to vote yesterday for a new head of state, whose main task will be to steer foreign and security policy, which has taken on new significance after the Nordic country joined NATO in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The runoff following a first round at the end of last month in which neither of the candidates or none of the candidates won more than the requisite 50% of votes was won by Alexander Stubb. Well, I'm joined now by Petri Bertsov, Monica's Helsinki correspondent. Uh, Petri, of those four
1: million potential voters, what was the turnout, and how much did Stubb win by? Good morning, Georgina. So the turnout was about seventy percent, which is quite average uh, for presidential elections in in Finland. And uh, Stubb, Alexander Stubb, won a little bit over 51% of those votes against uh, the challenger Pekka Harvester from the Greens. And it, it was actually just 90,000 votes separating the two, which is the narrowest ever margin in, in uh, Finland's history of presidential elections. Because there wasn't a lot to choose between them. <laughs> well, that's 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 very much true. I mean, they are both uh, Harvester and Stubb um, very sort of western oriented uh, liberals uh with a lot of foreign policy experience both of them former for- foreign ministers and and uh, lots of experience in peace mediation and sort of uh, works work in international organizations the EU the UN at the end of the day i think it came down to issues of 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 image and then you know as the election debates uh, progressed then uh, the uh, the media was really hard pressed to find some differences between them and then um, in the final stages, Stubb was probably a little bit more hardliner um, vis-a-vis, I mean, um, for, for Russia uh, affairs than, than, than Harvest, but very, very similar ca- candidates, as you said. Mm. So tell us more about Stubb and his vision for Finland. Well, yes, uh, Stubb is, um, I think, one of the youngest ever presidents that Finland will get. He's um uh, He's only, I believe, 55 years old. Uh, he is very internationally minded. He, is, he has a, um, a British wife. He's lived uh, most of his life outside of Finland. He's worked worked in in countries such as, uh, I mean, he's, he's worked in the EU. He's, he's been a professor in, in, in Italy and, and so on. So he is really, he wants to anchor Finland uh, very uh, firmly in, in the West. He wants Finland to have very close relations with the uh, uh, the United States. He wants Finland to take a leading role both in the EU and in in um, NATO. Um, and but then also one thing he stressed in his campaign that he wants to uh, unite Finland. And of course, I mean that's what most most politicians say. But 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 Finland is uh, rather divided now. The the far right uh, is polling over twenty percent um, in 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 polls, and also it's in the. The far right is in the government and has several key minister posts. And also, if you look at just the sort of general mood uh, in Finland, it's quite conflictual at the moment. There are a lot of strikes, more more than more than before. So Stubb really wants to sort of bring people together. And as as proof of this, he actually, as soon as the his victory was announced, he went to speak to uh, Harvisto supporters first before before his own supporters, and he went to. To make an appeal to them and also appeal to Harvester himself, and and said to Harvester that uh, Harvester is one of the greatest uh, people that he knows, and and said that he has he has a job for Harvester if Harvester is interested.
4: Mm.
0: His pleasure, sort of anything goes policy for Finland in NATO. Uh,
1: What what does that mean? Well, yeah, this was one of the differences in 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 debate. So, Finland is. has not traditionally been hawkish on on Russia. Finland has usually been the sort of the go-between, sort of NATO and EU and, and and on the one side, and then Russia on the other hand. Uh, the, the former President Niinistö, or, or still the current president for some weeks, he was uh, he was known sort of as a Russia whisperer, you know, or Putin whisperer. He had good relations with with Putin. That's not to say that he approved of Putin. He just he had you know th- he wasn't talking terms with them. Whereas um, Stubb has said that he is is not interested in talking with Putin as, as long as the war goes on. And he also said that he doesn't want Finland to set any conditions in its NATO uh, membership, for example, when it comes to stationing foreign troops in Finland or, you know, the trans, transfer of uh, nuclear, pos, possible transfer of nuclear nuclear weapons on, on Finnish territory. So he has just, uh, you know, th- this is, this might sound to some listeners as, as just normal policy in NATO, but in Finland, this is rather controversial because Finland, Finland has had a long standing policy of neutrality and to say something like that is is, is quite uh, bra- brave in Finnish politics so so that's that's maybe something that sets to uh, apart from Harveston. Mm.
0: Uh, and finally Petri, how significant was this election for Europe and NATO?
1: Well, I mean, I would say very significant, uh, especially for for uh, NATO, given that Finland is the latest member. And when Finland joined, it essentially doubled NATO's land border with uh, with Russia. So Finland is really now a frontline state. Um, and and there's a lot of talk about a potential uh, future conflict or at least you know even worse relations between uh, the NATO and and Russia. And I think it's it's quite significant to know uh, that Finland is led by uh, such pro-Western president. Because let's remember that's yeah it hasn't always been the case. You know Finland has has had presidents in the past who have. Uh, spoken for, um, you know, close relations with, with, with Russia. So I think for Europe, this was a really good news that that Finland gets such a cooperative and so such a Western-oriented president.
0: Petri, thank you very much indeed. That's Petri Butsoff there. Now, still to come on the programme...
5: It is vital for us to be investing in this sovereign capability in Australia so we understand the technology and we can move rapidly towards it.
0: We'll look at Australia's expanded military drone programme. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients it's about having the right ideas of course but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts that's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference Tune in to the Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin. It's 7.21 here in London. And joining me in the studio is Simon Brook, the journalist and communications consultant. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. Uh, now, we've just been hearing um, from Paul Rogers about uh, Netanyahu and his plans for a ground offensive in Rafa. Now, we also know that uh, uh, Joe Biden had a long telephone conversation with Netanyahu yesterday. Uh, and the Times of Israel picks up on that. What are they saying?
2: Yeah, it's uh, uh, the lead story... Uh, this morning in the Times of Israel and the paper is one of a number of outlets quoting a senior U.S. administration official sort of elaborating on that conversation between Biden and Netanyahu yesterday. Um, there's a quote in the paper from this senior Uh, US administration official saying under current conditions, we cannot support a military operation in Rafah because of the density of the population. Uh, Obviously, the Israelis have made it clear to the US that a a precondition of any Rafah operation would be moving the population out of harm's way. But uh, the paper points out there's a real feeling that uh, Washington's approval for such a move will be harder to receive than it was in the early stages of the conflict. According to the paper, apparently a third of the conversation between Biden and Netanyahu yesterday was devoted to a potential hostage release deal. Um, And the good news is, I suppose, is that both sides believe that real progress apparently has been made on agreeing a framework, which is a way forward. Um, But there's certainly a feeling that that this is going to be a lot tougher for Israel um, in terms of persuading uh, the U.S., its main ally, that this is the right thing to do.
0: Absolutely. Netanyahu also gave an, an interview to. NBC, I think, which was screened yesterday, saying that they will move the hostages, but they are going to press ahead. And Hamas, of course, who's also given an interview, uh, this time to to a local network, has said that then all deals are off the table.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting, um, certainly the the quotes here in the the, the Times of Israel say talking about reaffirming our shared goal to see Hamas defeated. So uh, that is something that's um, very clear. Um, Again, the the US official saying you will not get a hostage deal unless Hamas is under significant pressure. And we've made that clear to the Egyptians and the Qataris. So in that sense, there is a sort of blessing by the US for continuing action by Israel. And as Paul Rogers was saying earlier on, of course, there's no love lost between uh, the Egyptians and Hamas. So pressure on the Israelis to do the right thing in terms of uh, the, the civilian population of Rafa, but obviously the pressure is also continuing on Hamas as mm. well.
0: Uh, now, as Paul said, it's possible that this war could go on until 2025, indeed well after the next US election. If Donald Trump wins that election, of course, that completely changes things, and we have a piece here uh, in the New York Times saying that Donald Trump suggests he would incite Russia to attack a delinquent uh, US and their allies. He says he would change the world order.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This has created shockwaves across the to global, uh, across the world. Um, governments uh, have been uh, trying to work out how to react to this. This New York Times analysis begins, I think, with a really shocking um, uh, anecdote a quote from um, Donald Trump when he first took office. And his staff explained how NATO works. Uh, Trump apparently said, You mean if Russia attacked Lithuania, we would go to war with Russia? That's crazy. Well, the point is, this is a defensive alliance, but I think it tells you a lot about uh, Donald Trump's approach. is sort of zero sum gain, um, and the paper points out that never before has a president of the United States suggested that he would incite an enemy to attack American allies, which is really quite shocking. Uh, it also says that that a second Trump term could effectively end the security umbrella that has guarded friends in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, and and. You know, brought about peace for much of the last eight decades. Um, there's a quote from uh, Douglas Lute, who is a retired lieutenant general who served as an ambassador to NATO under Obama and also an advisor to President uh, Bush as well. Russia and China have nothing to compare with America's allies, and these allies depend on American commitments. So there really is this sort of this unique ability that the West has to oppose people, that Russia, China, presumably Iran could be added to that as well, that uh, that threaten democracy and, and human rights around the world.
0: And it's worth just quoting Donald Trump himself. This was at a rally in South Carolina this weekend. He said uh, that not only would he not defend European countries he deemed to be in arrears – that's arrears of payment to NATO – from an attack by Russia, but that he would go so far as to encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want.
2: It is. I mean, obviously he his, his uh, love affair with Putin continues it seems yeah he he, he the paper out points out that he has doubled down on his comments. We should never give money anymore without the hope of payback or without strings attached. He says I mean the paper also points out there is a, the good news such as there is here is that Congress recently passed legislation barring any president from withdrawing from the NATO treaty without Senate approval but you know the point is even if that's legally true it's the the mood music it's the message coming out of Washington and of course the point is as the paper the New York Times says you know, we, this is not money owed to the US this is money C- commitments that are not being made to defence spending which NATO agreed back in 2014 mm. um, uh, just 11 of the 31 members uh, have achieved the, the correct, the 2% level of spending on defence but this as I say is not money owed to the US it's just a commitment of individual governments
0: Let's have a look at South Africa now, this is a story in the Times by Jane Flanagan in Cape Town and it's about Archbishop Desmond Tutu
2: Yeah, you'll forgive me um, if I get a little bit, little bit fanboy about Desmond Tutu, but I just think he's the most incredible... He was the most incredible man. Um, so, yeah, the, new, the the Times of London reports from the Desmond and Leo Tutu Legacy Foundation, which is a museum in celebration of the, the great man's life and service. Um, and it, it's a sad piece, really, because the Times... Correspondent talks to a musician from Johannesburg, Concord Nkambinde, who is there um, with her, probably the only other visitor, which is, as I say, particularly uh, depressing, really. Um, and the story really is about how people in South Af- South Africa are already beginning to forget who Desmond Tutu is. Apparently, when Nkambinde held up a picture of Desmond Tutu in a Sunday school only one child recognised him and another confused him with Nelson Mandela. So anyway, this this musician is going to do his best to reverse that. Um, and he's contributed to a new film called A Tree Has Fallen, Remembering Archbishop Tutu, which is actually by a Swedish journalist called Marika Grishol. Um But uh, it's just a really important uh, way, I think, of celebrating this man and um, keeping in him not just in the memory of South Africa, but hopefully in the world. And I just think, especially now when democracy is under attack uh, around the world, when so many of the world leaders inspire nothing but fear and loathing, here is somebody we should be celebrating and remembering and, and... Emulating, I suppose, shouldn't Absolutely.
0: we? Absolutely. He was also a great friend to Zimbabweans. He supported our fight for democracy and he I've interviewed him a, a couple of times. Lucky and just you. just such a wonderful, wonderful man. Warm and you humor, you really humble. felt that coming from him. You could feel it emanating from him. It was something yeah. I will never forget, I actually, um, meeting
2: him. Wonderful gig.
0: Uh finally, <laughs> let's go to Brazil. And apparently there is an illegal hot air ballooning scene there. I would find it difficult to see how you could get away with hiding the fact that you're flying a hot sort of air balloon. Sort sneaking a
2: balloon up there sort of thing. But I, yeah, I love this story because, yeah, I mean, there is something so subversive about it, I suppose. But yes, um, the, there's a wonderful report here. Pre-dawn in Rio, a group of uh, what are known as baleros, these are these uh, hot air balloon fanatics, leave the city and go to the edge of the rainforest. And uh, yeah, they launch their balloons with these incredible, beautiful designs. It sounds horribly dangerous, I have to say. Exhilarating, but but death-defying and and scary. Um, apparently, it's a it's a tr- decades-old tradition, according to the Guardian. Uh, brought to Brazil from it by its former colonizer Portugal, and it was really part of uh, thought to be part of June festivities honoring Catholic saints Anthony, Peter, and John. If you're interested, but just the idea of getting up there on a balloon so exhilarating a view the wonderful views whatever and doing something which is actually slightly naughty as i say um and uh, 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 that isn't officially approved i think yeah really appeals to me
0: absolutely and being in a hot air balloon is so much fun
2: i would love to do it it's absolutely, absolutely terrifying love it.
0: <laughs> simon thank you very much indeed thank you. now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today Israel launched a special forces operation that freed two Israeli hostages in Rafah amid airstrikes early today, which local health officials said killed 37 people and wounded dozens in the southern Gaza city. The Israeli military said it had conducted a series of strikes on southern Gaza that have now concluded without providing further detail. U.S. President Joe Biden and top Western officials criticized former President Donald Trump on Sunday after he suggested the United States might not protect NATO allies who aren't spending enough on defense from a potential Russian invasion. NATO's 31 members have agreed on a target of spending at least 2% of gross domestic product on defense, but NATO estimates have shown that only 11 are spending that much. And in the U.S. Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs fought back to beat the San Francisco 49ers, 25 to 22 in overtime, and win their third Super Bowl in five years. This was the first Super Bowl to be held in Las Vegas and attracted arguably more interest than ever before, with the US television audience expected to eclipse the record 115 million for Kansas City's win over the Eagles last year. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. <laughs> We turn our gaze on Latin America now, where unrest erupted in Bogota last week after the failure of the Supreme Court to elect a new attorney general. Oscar Gardiela Rivera is a professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. Oscar, welcome back to the studio. Can I just comment on what you're wearing, please?
6: (laughs) It's lovely to see you, Georgina. Of course, go ahead.
0: So your T-shirt is The Globalist. It says, in our Globalist font, this is a monocle shirt promoting the show. I,
6: I feel part of the family. I am part of the How family. Oh
0: fantastic. <laughs> well, I guess our listeners can buy these too if they want to. <laughs> it looks great, I must say. Oscar, let's let's go back to Colombia, though, and what's happening in Bogota. What's the background to this row of the Attorney General?
6: Well, there are two, uh, uh, two elements uh, in the background. Number one is the... Uh, Political use and abuse of the office of the uh, uh, general prosecutor by uh, uh, Mr. Barbosa, who is about to finish uh, his term. Uh, He was appointed by the previous administration, by the Duque administration, and has used uh, uh, clearly. I mean, there is absolutely uh, absolute consensus in Colombia that he has used uh, uh, his office, his position in the judiciary as general prosecutor, to attack the current uh, government, Uh, and uh, not only. that there are serious allegations against the person who would become uh, the uh, general prosecutor if the Supreme Court fails uh, to appoint uh, a new one. This is because uh, there is clear evidence unearthed by journalists who are critics of the current administration, of the Petro administration, that uh, she, uh, uh, Mrs. Mancera, uh, has been covering up uh, uh, serious uh, drug trafficking uh, happening in the Pacific. So that's, the, the, that's one element. So the other element is the The Supreme Court's failure to appoint a a new uh, uh, general prosecutor, even though they have had the list of uh, three possible uh, new ones, three very qualified women uh, for months now. Uh, Nobody understands why they haven't uh, been able and or perhaps unwilling to uh, uh, appoint her. That would leave the Office of the General Prosecutor without uh, anyone. And this lady, this seriously questioned, would become uh, the new one. So, uh, again, even journalists, uh, most of the media, who is, you know, fairly critical of uh, Mr. Petro, agree that this is a serious problem. Hence, the uh, protest uh, Of course, the problem is that when you have protests, uh, particularly against, uh, you know, Aiming to put pressure on uh, the judiciary, uh, things can heat up. They did. Uh, the police took uh, uh, time to act. Nothing, uh, you know, nothing serious really happened. Uh, but this uh, has given ammunition to uh, those in the right of uh, uh, the political spectrum in Colombia to attack Petro, if he had sort of manipulated uh, uh, these uh, uh, protests. So that's the background.
0: And what does it mean for P- President Petro?
6: Well, what it means uh, for President Petris uh, uh, at least uh, his perspective on this, is that this is yet a new chapter of so-called lawfare. Uh, this uh, practice that is widespread in the Americas uh, of uh, using uh, judicial means uh, to try and get rid of uh, uh, either political oppositions or the government. In fact, we are beginning to see this even in the United States. I mean, you could compare this to the very uh, peculiar report that came out of the Department of Justice uh, pointing at Biden's uh, uh, supposed, uh, uh, you know, uh, problems. Uh, This is very similar to that. We have seen it in Guatemala, in Brazil against Lula, in Peru against uh, uh, Castillo, also uh, in Argentina and in other parts of Latin America. So this this is a, uh, for Petro, this is a new chapter of lawfare, uh, use of the law in order to try of, uh, you know put a spanner in the works of uh, uh, progressive uh, liberal and or center leftist governments.
0: Mm. Well, let's have a look, at, a quick look at Brazil before you go. So lawyers for the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, say he surrendered his passport as part of a police investigation into the attempted coup that was on the 8th of January last year how has the situation developed
6: well there is now very clear evidence documentary evidence that bolsonaro knew about not only knew about the the attempted coup d'etat but actually uh, uh, participated in its organization the uh, police has found both images of a meeting and a document that was would be uh, a draft of uh, the uh, uh, you know the a state of exception measure that would have been taken uh, during the coup, and uh, it is clear that Bolsonaro would have uh, uh, participated in these uh, drafting. So here we have a sort of uh, smoking gun uh, telling us that not only Bolsonaro, but also at least four generals. Uh, were uh, in cahoots and had organized uh, this potential coup d'etat, yet another uh, with the participation of members of the judiciary. So uh, uh, although not all members of the judiciary and at least two generals uh, uh, refused to participate, it is uh, clear evidence that a coup uh, was in the works.
0: So what happens now?
6: Well, what happens now is that the, the investigation will continue. Uh, Mr. Bolsonaro is already, uh, uh, you know, unable to uh, stand uh, for public office. But... Uh, But again, here we have perhaps the the first very clear evidence that this sort of practice is happening, a sort of mutation from your hard coup d'etat of the 1970s to a softer version in which the civilians try to maintain an appearance of democracy. So something like this would be happening in Brazil, and uh, uh, to a different, perhaps lesser, but equally dangerous, uh, 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 you know, state in in Colombia.
0: How stable is the situation in Brazil now?
6: Uh, well, it seems it seems a stable. I was there uh, uh, later last year, and it seems a stable. But everybody agrees that uh, you know. Part of the problem is uh, that uh, you know there was never a transition period after the coup d'état. So the members, many members of uh, the Brazilian Army, still uh, you know maintain uh, that kind of ideology. And the fact that at least four of them uh, were clearly uh, in cahoots and organizing and part of uh, uh, the design for this coup d'état uh, well tells us uh, uh, the situation. You know, someone like like Lula could be vulnerable.
0: Oscar, thank you very much indeed. That's Oscar Guardiola Rivera. And this is Monocle Radio. It is 18.39 in Canberra, that's 8.39 in Zurich. Australia has announced a further $400 million investment in a homegrown aviation combat drone programme. It's part of a broader overhaul of the country's military, which has provoked some controversy. Karen Middleton is the Saturday Paper's chief political correspondent and she joins me now. Karen, this is the Ghost Bat drone and according to the Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy, it's the first military combat aircraft to be designed, engineered and manufactured in Australia in more than 50 years. What more can you tell us about it?
7: Well, it's part of a, a drive by the government to overhaul um the defence strategy but also capability georgina here in australia they've talked for some time about the transition to uncrewed aircraft and i think what we we saw in conflicts towards the end anyway in conflicts like afghanistan and we're seeing as you mentioned you know now in ukraine increasingly the use of these uncrewed aircraft governments like them because they can be precise and because they don't put their own uh, defence personnel at risk so they're interested in investing and the government is now decided it's willing to invest in this technology and the manufacture to make uh, these these vehicles in Australia. And that's part of also part of a strategy to be more self-sufficient with Australian defence.
0: Conroy also confirmed that work is underway on a separate secretive project for a smaller armed drone. Do we have any idea what that might be?
7: Well, again, they, I mean, they don't like to talk about this until such time as these things are produced and in use. And even then, they're very sensitive about um, talking about those kinds of uh, um, vehicles. But, but they are designed to complement existing capability. And again, we've got this new defence strategy that is looking particularly to the region and looking particularly to um, operations offshore. So pushing Australia's defence further afield uh, with a view to what it might occur in the Asia, Asia Pacific and particularly uh, coming from North Asia. So these kinds of sophisticated technologies are designed to complement the um, ocean-going and other aircraft, uh, you know, ocean vessels and other aircraft that we've already got, uh, with a view to a much more high-tech conflict into the future.
0: Mm. And, and you talk about sort of a new defence policy. We, we, we know that the, the centre-left Labour government wants to rework Australia's military, they want to, as you say, move away from more conventional weapons. Uh, this first came up in a major defence review, didn't it? Published in April. Um th-
7: that's right, yes, it did. Um, the government recast that strategy. and it's controversial because you know it is being interpreted as focusing on China and China's aspirations. And as we know, and we've discussed before, Georgina, that the Australian relationship with China has been quite fraught and it has been seen to be getting back on track until we had a few hiccups again recently diplomatically. but but certainly while it is trying to diplomatically restore ties and, and um, particularly trade ties with China, There is a lot of effort going into a defence strategy that really is designed to anticipate where future conflict might lie and particularly something sourced from there and to be able to combat it long before any conflict actually arrived on Australian shores.
0: Mm. Now, some critics argue that over-reliance on drones could have an ethical implication, particularly regarding civilian casualties and privacy concerns. And I wonder if there's been much public discussion or media coverage of this aspect of unmanned vessels.
7: There has been in the past when this was more of a theory, concept. I think it will come back as we see these kinds of um, vehicles coming into operation. There has been concern, as you say, that it distances the operators from the the violence on the ground if they just have to You know, if they can can go and sit in a box and and kill people from a distance and then go home and have dinner with the family. That's long been a concern. And I know it's been a concern in the United States as well. And I think that sort of debate will reemerge if and when these kinds of vehicles are being used in a conflict situation.
0: Mm. And I mean, this is a huge investment that's been announced, nearly 400 billion. What effect is that going to have on the economy?
7: Well, there's always controversy about defence spending, and we here in Australia are in straightened economic times, as in uh, many, many other countries. And there has been debate about the prioritisation of defence and whether or not it's wise to be uh, allocating so much money. It's It hasn't had a huge controversy. Maybe it hasn't had as much attention yet um, as, it, as it may get, this particular commitment. But, but as you say, there is controversy always around what a government prioritises, and certainly a centre. To left government making such a big investment in defence is, is causing some uh, unrest and unhappiness among their traditional constituents,
0: for mm. sure. As well as producing drones for the Australian military, could Australia also supply to its AUKUS partners or indeed further afield?
7: I think there's potential for that. And the, the fact that they are looking at manufacturing these onshore means that, that they may well be thinking about where they can market the technology Uh, beyond Australia as well. Certainly the the next stage of the AUKUS deal, the first stage of that uh, deal between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia focused on nuclear-powered submarines. But beyond that, there is an emphasis on technology sharing uh, and on defence industry and how the three countries can cooperate. So that does open up the the scope for greater collaboration on on endeavours like this.
0: Karen, thank you very much indeed. That's Karen Middleton and this is The Globalist. On Monocle Radio.
1: UBS has over 900 investment
2: analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: It's time now to talk economy and trade with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service, who joins us on the line now. Good morning to you, Vicky. Good morning. Uh, So we are looking at uh, the the news that China's seeing the fastest fall in annual consumer prices in 15 years, uh, and oil prices have started this week slightly lower.
5: Indeed, I think there was an expectation when uh, the conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean sort of blew up um, that oil prices were going to rise quite significantly, but not just oil, but also gas. Um, what we've seen is that this hasn't happened. And and in fact, you know there are always expectations and hopes that um, there will be a ceasefire, that things will improve. So the markets have generally been waiting to see. There's now an expectation that maybe this is the last push that Israel is making. I don't understand the politics, uh, of course, on that, but the markets seem to think that, Um, perhaps that pressure on oil price is no longer there. In fact, if anything, prices have started coming down again. Uh, And of course, we have seen the US pumping up. It's... Own production and that has been countering feel like some of the concerns about whatever may be happening in the Middle East so so that's where we are and you're quite right about uh, China I and mean, what we've seen is that China has been exporting deflation for quite some time and this is all important because we've still got the European Central Bank the IMF the OECD Everybody sort of talking about we need to be very careful about future inflation prospects and the whole geopolitics is quite an important part of all this. But in reality, what seems to be happening is that there is a, a sort of ingrained push now towards lower prices and China is one of those demonstrating this very, very clearly what we've seen actually prices falling for a number of months now, which uh, is quite extraordinary. And what's happened, of course, in the year to January is that this has been the biggest contraction that we've seen in prices since 2009. Uh, And that is, uh, you know, good news for the world economy, but quite a concern for China where a lot of this is partly the energy price decline but also the fact that the economy is just not moving very fast mm. and we know of course that china's financial markets are
0: closed at the moment for the lunar new year does that and they don't open again till i think it's uh, february the 19th so uh, does that traditionally have an effect on the markets
5: <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is that there was a bit of cheer just before it closed for the holidays, uh, because the expectation had been, and we've seen already some moves by the Chinese government to put a bit more uh, sort of reflationary uh, stimulus into the economy. We've seen, you know, the the, the regime for banks and the reserves eased a little bit. And there is a general expectation that there will be something also in the property side uh, where there's been a big, big issue with uh, you know the the whole market looking pretty, pretty uh, dangerous for quite some time now and that does require government intervention so there have been expectations that there would be some help and hints of that uh, of course what tends to happen about the economy when you have the beginning of a new year is that there's a lot of movement people travel from one part of China to another and there is more spending that happens so it's possible that by the time the market reopens we may have seen some indicators that suggest that perhaps, you know, the consumer who has been very hesitant until now in China might start spending a little bit more. And I think that will also affect the mood in the markets when they reopen.
0: Mm. Now, The Times is reporting that the UK economy probably fell into recession last year. Tell us
5: more well we don't really know because we're going to get data on gdp coming out on thursday um we've had pretty mixed picture we had a drop in the first month of the quarter which was october then we have a recovery almost offsetting what we saw in october in november and now we're waiting for the data in december which will tell us whether in fact there was a drop in gdp that quarter or not if there was um then we're likely to have been in a technical recession for the last six months. It remains to be seen how significant that would be uh, is another issue. Of course, we still have concerns about inflation here too. Uh, There is an interesting um, uh, dilemma right now for the Bank of England because inflation has been creeping up a little bit the the month before, which was December, because of an increase in tobacco duties. Uh, What's going to be happening in January, with the latest data coming out on Wednesday this week, um, is the, the... the impact of the electricity price cap having gone up at five percent increase in what households are going to be paying simply reflecting what had been happening to wholesale prices over the period that they're calculating this cap on um and that would perhaps put inflation up a little bit but if we have the reality of falling underlying inflation Interest rates still having quite an impact on on spending and data that doesn't look too good in terms of the economy. Then perhaps the markets reassess when the first cut in interest rates may come.
0: Mm. Uh, we're also getting bank results coming out this week.
5: Yes, well, the first one which is going to come out with the results is going to be HSBC, which is coming at the end of this week. Um, it's expected to be a pretty good result for them, possibly sort of doubling of, of where they were uh, a year ago. Interest rates, of course, have helped. And then we get all the other banks as well in the UK coming out with their results over the following week. And and that is going to be an interesting one to watch because obviously interest rates being so high have been a major, major influencer on this. There's been a big high, about whether the banks are paying savers enough. They've raised their rates, but they still managed to make, we think, because, of course, we haven't seen the results yet, uh, quite a substantial profits. I think the estimates are over 50 billion, perhaps, over the last year, which is pretty high. Uh, there are concerns, of course, you know, who gets the rewards for that, bonus payments, high. But there's also one interesting factor in all this, which is that NatWest, which has been, you know, under some sort of cloud, mainly because it's head had to resign uh, recently, um, but also um, because... Uh, you know, We don't really know what the shares are likely to be doing over the next few months. The government wants to sell a certain percentage Of those shares that it still owns, because it had to step in very significantly to rescue the Royal Bank of Scotland, now, of course, all part of NatWest Group, Um, back in the financial crisis, uh, are they going to sell that at a discount? Uh, They do need the money if they're going to give any tax giveaways before the election, which is due sometime, we think, in the autumn. So a very important one to watch what happens to NatWest shares.
0: Mm. Uh, And just finally, very quickly, a, a look at farmers protesting across Europe and the UK.
5: Yes, this is now becoming seriously widespread, even though, of course, the various governments, whether you look at France or Germany, have given quite a lot of concessions to farmers already in order to stop that from happening. It's been going on now uh, for quite a few weeks, uh, mainly because, of course, costs to farmers have gone up very significantly, environmental costs and and things they have to observe because of the net zero um, ambitions have increased very significantly. Subsidies have been Withdrawn in many countries in terms of diesel uh, tax, um, which has gone up again in some places, and also cheap imports coming in from the Ukraine and elsewhere. Real concerns um, about the future of farming, which, frankly, is still very small. I think it accounts for only about 1.4 percent of GDP has been calculated in in the EU. Um, but, and yet uh, it is very, very important when those farmers strike because you can't get your goods in. Plus, of course, they've been disrupting a huge uh, number of the sort of uh, road networks across Europe. Um, concessions, as I said, are coming, have come, and there probably will be more. So there's a bit of a retreat from those environmental uh, sort of targets, if you like, not necessarily targets, but environmental ambitions that mm. that, that that perhaps are there, which have caused a huge amount of problem, concerns that other countries from which imports are coming may not be subject to the same uh, costs. And, and, uh, and I think that's something that needs to probably be resolved. And we are seeing moves there, but how we'll end up, it's not very clear.
0: Vicky Price, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. This Saturday, millions of people across Asia and beyond kicked off celebrations for the Lunar New Year. 2024 marks the first year since 2019 not to be affected by the coronavirus pandemic and record travel is expected, with China's population alone projected to take 9 billion trips during the 40-day holiday period. But Beijing is also celebrating the holiday amid growing concerns about the future of the economy and amid fraught political relations with Taiwan. Well, joining me now to tell us more is the freelance journalist based in Taipei, William Yang. William, uh, happy New Year to you. What is, the, what is the cultural significance of Lunar New Year?
4: So basically Lunar New Year is kind of like the Christmas and the Thanksgiving holidays in the West. Uh, it's one the most important time of the year for people all around China, Taiwan, or Chinese people all around the world to gather with their family members and celebrate this important time of the year. And usually it's marked by big family feasts and also a lot of different family rituals and also given uh, practicing a lot of the long lasting cultural practices, like giving out red envelopes to wish their uh, family members a good fortune and good luck in the coming year. So uh, this year, like you just said, uh, because it's the first year since the the COVID-19 pandemic that no quarantine or any travel restrictions are being imposed. So just the first two days alone of the holiday, we are seeing more than 230 million people inside China traveling across the country, going back to their hometown for the first time in four years. And uh, just the road traffic alone is more than 200 million trips uh, have already been made and more are expected to be made. And a lot of uh, just extreme weather are expected also to put some uh, restraints and also uh obstacles for people trying to reach their rural hometowns.
0: Mm-hmm. How is Taiwan marking Lunar New Year? You're there. What's the mood like given the threats by China? <laughs>
4: So, because it's a very important cultural uh, tradition here in Taiwan as well, so people basically have uh, are focusing more or less on getting uh, get getting together with the families. And uh, even though we just had a presidential election, and China did uh, issue some warnings and also uh, take away some Taiwan's diplomatic allies, and also continue to send a. Uh, balloons across Taiwan, even during the uh, Chinese New Year, but somehow people are not really being affected. Uh, The news are being reported, but it's not really creating a lot of uh, anxiety among the Taiwanese people. People here are mostly uh, being very festive and the weather here has been very nice. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, also big traffic around the island as well. Uh, The very famous uh, tourist destinations are seeing a volume and increase of uh, travellers visiting there. Mm.
0: And just very quickly, William, we know, of course, that there is an economic downturn. Uh, Is that having an um, impact of people reining back spending?
4: Right. I think uh, especially inside China, we are indeed uh, witnessing a lot of uh, especially young people trying to cut back on the spending on gifts that they are preparing for their family. That's Uh, what a lot of the Chinese people have been telling me. And also, they're actually choosing the cheaper way of traveling. So in the past, uh, usually train and air traffic is usually the highest uh, during the Chinese New Year holidays. But this time around, this year uh, in particular, for the first two days, the road traffic dominated the uh, way and the Mm -hmm. volume of travel that we're witnessing inside China. More than, I think, 80% of the traveling are by road. So I think we can already see that people are raining back on their spending and choosing the cheaper way of reaching their rural hometowns. And mm-hmm. I think that also means that it's uh, just taking longer for people to get home.
0: Thank you very much to William Yang in Taipei. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks also to our producers, Laura Kramer, Sophie Monihan coombs and Chris Chermak, our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. The Globalists will be back at the same time tomorrow and the briefing is coming up at noon London time.